Luke chapter 23, uh, get to verse 32 as quickly as you can. I'm going to go ahead and uh, read that off, right off the bat this morning as we get into our message. Um, oh, how many titles I tried to give this thing. I thought about No Greater Love and several others, but I, I've, I've, I landed on Because of Love, Because of Love. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. And our songs have tried to point to the importance of praising God because of love, because of what He has done, uh, because we have so much to thank Him for. But let's look in Luke chapter 23. We're going to read verses 32 through 34. Uh, then we're going to be reading several other uh, passages today. But I wanted to start off here. And it begins in verse 32 by saying to us, And there were also two other male factors led with him to be put to death. And when they were come to the place, which is called Calvary, there they crucified him and the male factors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. So this morning, I want us to look at why he deliberately, emphasis there, deliberately went to the cross and laid down his life for us. Why he did that. And why would he utter the words, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Because honestly, through the years, through the ages, men have tried to grasp, to come to, uh, to try to reason with and understand this concept of redemption. And it's very simple, but we, we complicate things. We tend to uh, make things more difficult than they need to be. Uh, just just come and watch me do anything and you'll see that that is true we just try to make things harder than they need to be when they need to be simple and i was reading a, a story that was shared by jay vernon mcgee he he has done some great commentary over the years and he was sharing this story over the radio about 30 some years ago and it's about an auction that took place i want to read this to you <clears throat> Try, try to explain uh, this biblical truth of, of redemption uh, in a story. So in your mind, I want you to go back some 150 years or so to the days before the Civil War. Imagine you are visiting one of the great cities in the South like Savannah or Atlanta, Birmingham, New Orleans. And as you approach the center of town, you hear a commotion where a crowd has gathered for a public auction. Now, the first thing that you notice in the crowd is a foul-mouthed, loud, boisterous man who you know by reputation only as the meanest and cruelest and most hateful man in town. But you also notice in the crowd another man who stands out for his dignity, his gentle manner, his soft-spoken tone, and you also recognize him by his reputation as the most kind and the most gentle and gracious man. Both men, along with this crowd, have gathered and waited for this auction to begin. 
So finally, the auctioneer steps up to the podium, and he begins rattling his words as the first item to be sold is brought to the auction block. Now, the time that they were in, you can imagine what or who the first item would be. And there on the block is a beautiful young black girl, about 20 years of age, and she is obviously filled with anxiety and fear as the bidding begins. From the beginning, this loud, obnoxious man that we've already heard about seemed to have his evil eyes set on this lovely, innocent young lady. She obviously knew him because of his reputation, and so she cringed with fear as he opened the bidding. And when the kinder gentleman saw her fear, he too placed a bid. And soon only these two were involved in the bidding as the price for the girl began to rise higher and higher and higher. But finally, the evil man bowed out because he realized that the price of the girl was more than he was willing to pay. More than he was willing to pay. So when the auctioneer closed the bidding, the kind gentleman went and paid the price for his purchase, and he was handed the bill of sale, and he turned to leave. And so the young girl started to follow her new master. And then he turned around to her, and he said, where are you going? And she said, well, I'm going with you. And he said, she said, you bought me, and I belong to you. And he said, oh, you misunderstood I didn't buy you to make you my slave. I bought you to set you free. So then he took the bill of sale and he wrote across it in big block letters, F-R-E-E. -E, and he signed his name and he handed it to the young girl. And she said, I don't understand. You mean I'm free? Yes, you are free. I can go wherever I want and do as I please. Exactly. You are free. Mister, I don't know who you are, but no one has ever shown such love and kindness to me. If I am free to do as I please, then nothing would please me more than to go with you and serve you till the day I die. And so that day she went home with, the story tells us, Abraham Lincoln, not as his slave, but as his willing servant. So there is a story of redemption. And although I'm not sure if this story is true or not, I think it serves as an allegory to illustrate for you and me and anybody else who's ever read or heard this story. What it serves to illustrate is the slavery to Satan that we are under and sin. And his cruel intentions for us in our lives. Because he is an enemy of our soul. But it also illustrates the gracious purchase made at a very at an incredible price by Jesus Christ. Not to make us a slave. Not to make us a slave. But to set us free. To set us free. So what could be our response? What other response could we have than to say to him, if you love me that much, I'll just, I'll serve you forever. What a great story. What a neat story. Just one of the ways that, that man has tried to 
to illustrate, to, to put into words, to come to terms with and understand redemption. It's not a perfect story. It doesn't perfectly illustrate it, but it gets pretty close, doesn't it? And, and still, even today, uh, men, women are trying to figure out and understand this, this thing called salvation, this thing called redemption. And they want, to, they want to relate to it somehow. And so I found a story about the men in the Philippines who since the 1950s have been doing something every year around Easter time. Every year on Good Friday, they reenact the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, which at first doesn't seem like all that strange because lots of churches, lots of religious organizations, lots of people reenact the, the, I'm sorry, the death, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. But the difference here is what they do is they allow themselves to be beaten they allow themselves to be hit and hurt. And then they allow themselves to be nailed to a cross, their hands and their feet to a cross. They, they choose to hang on a cross. And they'll hang there for anywhere from a matter of few, a few minutes to an hour. And after that, they're taken down, they're rushed to a medical facility, and their wounds are treated. I read where one man had done this for 30 plus years every year to the point <clears throat> that he says that the wounds don't hurt anymore. Interesting story. But crucifixion, you know, being able to, to, to view it uh, actually happening has got to be a horrible thing because crucifixion is a horrible death. And when the Romans ruled the world, they crucified thousands of people. It is a horrible and a terrible, terrible way to die. This is, we've also tried to understand crucifixion and explain it. And were the nails here? Were the nails here? And, and did this happen and did that happen? But here's something that most everybody agrees on. It is a horrible way to die. Horrible way to die. Because what happens as your hands are nailed to the cross, you will sag down. And as you sag down, you are unable to breathe and expand your lungs so that you can get air. But then what happens is you have to push yourself up with your feet that are nailed to the cross to be able to suck in and breathe air in. But the pain becomes so excruciating to your feet that you have to let it go and sag again. And this is repeated over and over again just to breathe, just to get air in. Until eventually... The pain and the exhaustion overwhelms you and you die. Horrible, horrible way for anybody to die. But the, the men in the Philippines uh, never have to struggle that long. They don't struggle till death. They struggle, like I said, anywhere from a few minutes to an hour, which is horrible to think about. But none of them, as they're doing this and as they're reenacting this expect to die none of them expect to die i want to make note here that these are real men that do this and these are real beatings that they go through and it is really a real crucifixion that they are experiencing so why do they do it why do it anybody here 
ready to sign up. Cherry, if anybody raised their hands, write their name down. Anybody? Everybody look around. I don't see one hand up. Mine's up, but I'm just, you know, this is just an example. I'm not volunteering either. But why would they do it? You know, a lot of reasons have been given for why these men would do this. Uh, one reason is that it proves their manhood to be able to do this. Another reason that's been given is that it is a rite of passage to prove their faith in God. Their faith has to be proven. This is a great way to do it. Nail me to a cross. And then there are those who say that they do it to prove their true repentance of their sin in their lives. And then, of course, anytime anything is done and a benefit can be received, one of those benefits usually is monetary. So some men do it for money. They do it for the money that they can get, maybe seeing how long they can stay up there. So different number of reasons that they do it, but no one has ever suggested that these men do it because they loved the people in the crowd. I'm doing this because I love the people in the crowd. No one has ever suggested that. No one has ever offered that as a reason. They did it for their own reasons. But love for sinners was not one of those reasons that they, that they chose to do this. They did, though, and I want to make note of this as well, they did choose to do this. They chose to do this. And the Bible tells us the same thing about Jesus, that he chose to lay down his life. He chose to die on a cross. And he told his disciples this on many occasions. He said to them that he would have to die. I know that in Matthew, um, right after Peter declared that Jesus was the Christ and the Son of God, he began to tell them that he would have to go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer many things, and that he would end up dead, but that he would rise again. And this is something that he shared with them uh, often. And then as he was getting ready to make that final trip to Jerusalem, he gathered the twelve together, and I'm going to read from Luke chapter 18, verses 31 through 33. He said to them, Then he took unto him the twelve, and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. For he shall be delivered unto the Gentiles, and shall be mocked, and spitefully entreated, and spitted on, and they shall scourge him, and put him to death, and the third day he shall rise again. Right there it is. And then before he was betrayed and, and turned over to his enemies, he said this in Matthew 26, 2. He said, Ye know that after two days is the feast of the Passover, and the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. So I'll throw those in there, and we should know this by deduction, that this was not a surprise to him. What was going to happen was not a surprise to him. And he knew what was going to happen, and he basically told them exactly how it was going to happen. So he deliberately, deliberately went to Jerusalem. And he deliberately went there knowing that it would end up in his death. Deliberately went. If there is going to be trouble somewhere, 
I am going to deliberately go in the other direction. How about you? I, I will be very deliberate in that. If I know somebody wants to beat me up, <laughs> I'm probably going to deliberately make sure I don't run into that person in a dark alley or something. And if somebody would go so far as to say, if I ever see you alone, I'm going to kill you, I would never be alone again. I would make sure one of you were with me. I don't care how big or how little you are as long as I got somebody with me. But he deliberately did this. Now, why? Why would he do this? Why would anybody, knowing that the city they were traveling to, they, he would be taken and, and executed? Why would he do this? It is our, it is in us to survive. It is in us to, to make it. You know, sometimes we get tired and we get weary and we say, Lord, I'm ready, take me now. But we have within us this desire to continue on. You know, sometimes we feel like we can't go on, but there is something innate within us to continue on. Because the idea of death, even to the Christian, you know, at times is a little bit unsettling because that means there's going to be a separation between me and my loved ones and me and my way of life that I know and I'm used to and I'm comfortable with. But none of this was a consideration for Jesus. You know, he had, he had some really good friends. He'd been traveling the world with, doing some amazing things, seeing lives changed, seeing people come to him and, and, and being transported from a place of sin and degradation and evil and wickedness into a place of love and acceptance and peace. And he had seen that take place. He had seen people who couldn't walk, who couldn't see, uh, who couldn't move, who had sores all over their bodies healed and made whole again. Now, what a high that would be to be able to do those things and to help people in that way. But he knew there was a greater purpose for him. And that greater purpose would affect more than just the few that he was able to see physically and in person where he was traveling. This greater purpose that he had actually left heaven to come to heaven, to come to earth to do, was to give his life for us. But still, there's got to be a reason. Why did he do it? Maybe he did it for the same reasons that the, the, Philippine, the Filipino man did. You think? You think maybe he did it to prove that he was a man? Well, absolutely not, because he wasn't. He was God. He was God who allowed himself to become a man so that, now listen, so that he could taste death for us. Because death is the punishment for sin, and sin is our sickness. And without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sin. So he came to become a human, to give his life for us, to taste death for us. He did that. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8 tell us, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So he didn't do it because he wanted to prove he was a man. He didn't need to do that. 
Maybe he did it because he felt like he needed to be punished for his sins. We know that's not the case either. Because Jesus didn't sin. He did not sin. That's why he could be the perfect sacrifice. But he actually went to the cross. He went there to be punished for my sins and yours. For my sin and yours is why he went to the cross. Why he, why he went there to do what he had to do. It says in Isaiah that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And that the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. By his stripes we are healed. Think about that. How can anybody be healed by stripes and beating? And how can, how can we be healed if it's not us that's actually going through it? But it says that by his stripes we are healed. Because of what he did, we can be whole. Because of what he did, we can be healed. Because of what he did, we can be free. We can be free. So maybe the obvious reason is he did it for financial gain. He did it for financial gain. I don't know of any mention of money except for the 30 pieces. And they never, he never touched those. So he didn't do it so that he could get paid. But he did go to pay for us. He went and paid for us. He paid the price for us. Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18-19, through 19, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. So we've kind of gone through all the reasons that the men in the Philippines would have gone and allowed themselves to be crucified, and none of those apply to Jesus. So why did he do it? You know, as far as theology goes, this is some really, really, really good theology, isn't it? Think about it. God came down to earth and became a man, became of no reputation, became nothing, became human. He took on the nature of a servant so that he could be pierced and crushed and wounded so that he could heal us from all the pain and the sickness and the worry and the sin that is inflicted upon us by this world. That's really good theology, isn't it? That's a great story. That's a blockbuster movie right there. Think about it. But still, we've not really touched on why. Why would he do this? Why would he, why would he deliberately go? And why would he do this? And you know the reason. You know the answer. You're all saying it in your heads right now. Because he loved us. Because he loved us. And oh, how easily it flows off the tongue and bounces around in our brain to say that. But think, I want you to think about his love for just a minute. And I think that for a good part of my life, I didn't really think much about the love that Christ had for me 
because I think I had reached a point, maybe you have too, where I felt like he was just tolerating me. You understand that? Just tolerating me. Just, you know, bound by his promise to never leave me, bound by his promise to never forsake me, because he must keep his promises. But he was just tolerating me. Kind of like when you're a teacher, and I'm not saying teachers do this, but this is the, <laughs> this is the uh, illustration that popped into my head. You know, the first day of school, teachers have such high hopes. This, this looks like a really good class. I think I could, I could really get into teaching again with this group of kids. They're, 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 they're kind of awesome. And then halfway through the year, as they walk in every morning, you're just kind of sitting there. I can't believe I have to keep teaching this unruly group of, I don't know, creatures. <laughs> and so the teacher just sits there and looks at them as they come in. And, yeah, I'll teach them some math today. And I'll teach them some English, some science maybe. I'm not really going to enjoy it, but I kind of have to do it because it's my job. And I need money to live and all that kind of stuff. So I'll tolerate them. And I think for me, that's where I was at. You know, I was doing the, the, the stuff that a Christian does. I was going to church. Church attendance has never been a problem for me. I thank God for that uh, for a number of reasons. When I was in college, I had to take a class on Wednesday nights. And for the life of me, I can't remember anything about that class. And it was a three-hour class every Wednesday. And it was something about computers. Have y'all ever heard of computers? I don't remember anything about it. And, you know, every time I went, I was like, man, I, I should be in church. I'm always at church on Wednesday nights. But I, it was the only time it was offered, and I had to get out of that college. I had to get my degree. I had to stop going to school. And, uh, and so I took that class. And, but, you know... I, I did the stuff that, you know, you're supposed to do. Um, and, you know, I, I did it with, with I, I thought, excitement, and I was glad to do it, but <clears throat> I just felt like he was just tolerating me. And if you think that way, then you, you have to think, too, if he is just tolerating me now, then why would he do what he did back then? Did he do it hoping that something better would become of me? That I would become a better Christian, a better servant, more, more like him? Is that why he did it? And is he now so disappointed that he just doesn't expect much anymore? Because, again, he's just tolerating me. And then I remember he's not bound by time. And he knows everything. So he knows, he knew what I was going to be like. He knew the kind of person I would become. He knows what I'm going to do a year from now, two years from now, ten years from now, if we're here. He knows. And the thing about it is, Scripture tells us that he so loved us that he gave his only son. He didn't just love us, he so loved us. You know, we don't just... We don't just love ice cream. We so love ice cream. You know what I'm saying? And, you know, some of us, 
some of us really, you know, that we have different things that we love that we would say we don't just love them. We really love them. And I imagine that that's kind of what's being said here. God really loved the world. He so much loved the world. And the thing is, at that moment in time, he loved me just as much as he loves me now. And a hundred years from now, he will love me as much as he loved me a hundred years ago. And 2,000 years from now, he will love me just as much. He loves me. And that love caused him to be deliberate in making his way to Jerusalem and laying down his life on the cross. His love for me, his obedience to the Father, that's what it's all about. So let us not just say Jesus loves me so flippantly. Let us understand that we are loved and tell me something about what everybody in this world really wants and is really looking for. Everybody. I don't care who you are. I don't care what time in this history that you existed. If you were a Roman soldier, if you were a woman at the well, if you were a disciple walking the streets with Jesus, if you were an astronaut or a a navigator across the ocean, or if you were an army general, or if you are a clerk at the store, or if you sell insurance, or if you work at the rock quarry, you want love. You need love. And the sad thing is you settle for a cheap imitation of it, people, that gets you by for just a little bit, but never quite satisfies and that goes, for, that goes for everybody in this world. We long to be loved. And the message of the cross is, I do love you. And I have loved you. And I will love you. And that will never change. And that's a big deal. That is, that is the biggest deal ever. And you'll lose sight of that. I will lose sight of that later today, tomorrow, the next day, next week, next month, next year. I will lose sight of that because a storm will come and I will question why. And something will happen and I'll question why. I'll get a, I'll get a, uh, a bad medical report and I'll question why. I'll get an unexpected bill. I'll question why. I'll have a flat tire again. I'll question why. My dog will eat another hole in my wall at home, and I'll question why. But he loves me. That never changes. That never, ever changes. John 15, 13. Greater love has no man than this. So right there it is. There is no greater love. Nowhere else. Not in a relationship. Not within the family. Not within the workplace, there is no greater love than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. And that's exactly what Jesus did deliberately. It was a deliberate thing. And let me ask you this. You've got, you've got friends. Would you, would you lay down your life for your friends? Are there people in your life that you would give your life for? I said earlier, we do what we can to, to stay alive and we want to survive, but would you lay down your life for, for anybody? I think maybe there's a few people you would. Maybe. 
let's take it a step further. You're going to lay down your life for somebody who you don't like or who you know doesn't like you? How about that? Are you going to be deliberate in laying down your life for people like that? People who would want to hurt you? People who would want to insult you? People who would drag you into court for something that you didn't do? People who would what would go to see you die? Would you go through a horrible death for people who would just come to enjoy the spectacle of watching you die and before it actually happened, they would spit on you and throw things at you? Would you be willing to die for somebody like that? I don't, I don't think I would. <laughs> but Jesus did. That's exactly what he did. And it becomes, ever, it becomes ever so clear when he says those words we read at the beginning. Father, forgive them. For they don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing. They don't see their great need. They don't know what they're doing. This is, this is what Jesus said. Can you imagine that? Would you not have said, Father, see that guy over there? Getting ready to throw that rock at me? How about a thunderbolt right in the, between the eyes for him? You know? No. And it's been suggested by some biblical scholars. You know, we see this once in Scripture. But some scholars say that because of the Greek that is used in this verse, that he actually said, Father, forgive them more than one time. More than once. And... You know, that the impression is that while he was being crucified and, and while he was going through everything that he went through, that he would say this over and over again. Now, that we don't have that for sure. All I know is that the sentiment was always there. Jesus wanted the Father to forgive the sin. That's what he wanted. But how many times did he have the opportunity to say it? How many times did he have the opportunity to say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. How about when they whipped him with the cat of nine tails that had the metal pieces on the end that ripped and tore his flesh open? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. How about when they took the crown, shoved it on his head, and put the robe over his lacerated shoulders and mockingly called him the king of Jews. He could have said it then. How about when he was forced to carry the cross up the hill to Calvary? He could have said it then. And then as the, as the soldiers nailed the nails into his hands and his feet, he could have said it then. He could have even said it when those angry faces looked him in the eye and said, if you're truly the Son of God, why don't you save yourself? Why don't you come down off that cross? I don't know how many times that he did say it, but I know there are plenty of opportunities for him to think it and to say those very words. And he said those words for people that hated him. He said those words to people that mistreated him, that were awful, awful, awful to him as he was on his way to the cross. 
he said it to people that rejected him. He went through horrible, horrible pain. And he did it for those people. And he did it for people who truly, truly deserved to go to hell. That's why he did it. For people who truly deserved to go to hell. That's where bad people are supposed to go, right? That's what we've always said. But I have this, this suspicion, I have this idea in my mind here this morning that maybe sometimes you feel like you're not really all that nice of a person either. I feel that way sometimes. I do. And I'll remember something that I've done or something that I've said that's hurt somebody else. A thought that I've had and then shame just kind of sweeps over me. And I think if the people around me ever knew what I said or did or thought, if they ever knew, I would just want to hide myself and never come out. And you know those things that I did, those things that I, that I said, those things that I thought, you know what those things were? Those things were sins. They were sins. And those are the reasons that he had to die. Because we have all sinned. That's what Scripture tells us. We've all sinned. We all deserve hell. Because we have all sinned. None of us are good enough or ever could be good enough to go to heaven, people. None of us deserve what Christ did for us on the cross. None of us. All of us know that we deserve hell. So when we think about how many times he said, Father, forgive me, and we think about the people and the opportunities that he had to say those words to the people that were doing what they were doing to him, the realization has to fall upon me and you as well that when he said, Father, forgive them, he was thinking about me. And he was thinking about you. And he literally died on that cross standing between me and hell. Providing a way for me not to have to go there. Demonstrating to me, as it says in Romans 5a, demonstrating his love for me. And that while I was a sinner, he died for me. Those are powerful words and we've got to understand <laughs> That it's more than just a time of the year to reflect and remember this and, and get all warm and fuzzy on the inside and think about the newness of life. All those things are important. But never forget that the reason that he was so deliberate and going where he went and doing what he did is because he loves you with a love that cannot be equaled anywhere in this universe or any other universe. You are loved that much. Have you ever let yourself be loved that much? Let yourself be loved that much. Find the peace that that love can give you. You're going to be your worst critic. You're going to look at all your faults, all your warts, all your misgivings. And you're going to think, he's just tolerating me. It's far beyond that church. He loves you. Greater love had, no man has ever had than the love that Christ has for you and me. And he did what he did so I would not get what I deserve. 
demonstrating that great love that while I was still a sinner, he died for me. So the question I want to finish with this morning is, did Jesus give his life for you in vain? Did he give his life for you in vain only to have you reject him? You're thinking, surely everybody that's here this morning is saved. Surely everybody that's here has accepted the salvation that Jesus offers. There's a possibility there may be one or two or five or ten that have not done this. And what I hope we've shown you here this morning is that it doesn't matter what you have done. No matter what you have said or thought or felt in your life. None of it is too bad that he, did, that he wouldn't lay down his life for you even though you've done that. He loves you that much. And our response to that is to accept what he has done, believe in him and who he is, and then have the frame of mind that this young lady in this story had. I've never been loved and treated with such kindness. I choose to stay with you, and I will be your willing servant for the rest of my life. Now, that was the story of an auction. I've got another auction story that I want to read to you before we leave today. This story deals with a wealthy man and his son who loved to collect beautiful works of art. And they had a lot of different things in their collection. They had some Picassos. They had some Rembrandts. And they would often sit together and look at these works of art and they would think how beautiful these are. How fortunate we are to have these things. And then when the Vietnam conflict broke out, the son had to go to war and he died in battle while he was rescuing another soldier. And when the father was notified, he grieved for his son because he loved him so much. And it was about a month after he was notified of his son's death that he heard a knock on his door and a young man stood at the door with a large package in his hands and he said, Sir, you don't know me, but I'm the soldier for whom your son gave his life. He saved a lot of lives that day, and he was carrying me when a bullet struck him in the heart, and he died instantly. And he would often talk about you and, he, and the fact that you guys loved art and enjoyed and appreciate art. And so he held out the package, and he said, I know this isn't much, and I'm not really the greatest artist, but I think your son would have wanted you to have this. And so the father opened up the package, and it was a portrait of the son that had been painted by this man. And he stared at it, and he felt like this, this artist had perfectly captured his son's personality in this painting. He was drawn to the eyes in the painting, and his eyes would well up with tears every time that he looked at it. And he was so thankful, he offered to pay the young man for the painting, and he said, oh, no. He said, I could never repay the gift that your son gave me. So I certainly wouldn't expect you to pay me for this gift that I'm giving you. So he took this painting and he put it over the mantle in his fire, uh, over his fireplace. And when any time somebody would come to the house and they would want to see the, the paintings that they had collected, he would take them to this painting first. And he would show them this painting first before he would take them anywhere else because he wanted them to see his son. And so about... A few months after that, 
this father passed away. And word got around that there was going to be a big auction and they were going to be selling off some of these great works of art. So a lot of influential people heard this and they wanted to take advantage of this. So they made plans to come to the auction. And the day of the auction came and the only painting on the platform was the painting of the sun. And so the auctioneer pounded his gavel and he goes, okay, who will start the bidding on the picture of the sun? And the response was silence. Nobody wanted to bid on it. And then finally somebody said, skip this one. We're not here to see this. And the auctioneer said, well, would someone start the bidding at $100, $200? And someone said, let's, let's get on with the real works of art. Can we please do that? That's why we're here. And the auctioneer said, but what about the sun? Who will take the sun? Finally, there was a voice from the very back. It was the gardener of the man who had died. And he said, I would like to take that picture. I can offer you $10. And so the auctioneer said, $10. We got a bid for $10. Would anybody bid $20? $20. Anybody bid $30? And finally, someone said, let him have it for $10 so we can get on with this thing. Because they were getting angry. That's not what they were here for. And so the auctioneer pounded his gavel, and he said, going once, going twice, sold for $10. Then someone said, good, now we can get on with the real paintings. But it was at this point that the auctioneer laid down his gavel and he said, the auction is over. And people said, well, what about the paintings? That's what we're here for. And he said this, I'm sorry, but when I was called to conduct this auction, I was given a secret stipulation. Only the painting of the sun would be auctioned. Whoever bought that painting would inherit the entire estate, including the paintings, the one who took the sun gets everything. Gets everything. And if you will take the sun, if you will receive what he is offering to you this morning, you get everything. Everything. Let's all stand. I want you to stand, if you will, and bow your heads for just a moment. Maybe there's someone here this morning that wants that wants to take the sun.